Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. If you didn't know already, Film Comment is next door neighbors with the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, whose film and video collection is filled with treasures. Last week, we invited our neighbors over for a special Labor Day themed screening of 16mm shorts from the NYPL's collection. The program was curated by Elena Rossi Snook, the film specialist at the library. She chose four shorts that captured micro-histories of labor organizing across different industries in the 60s and 70s. One of the films, Undelivered by Ralph Arlick, documents working conditions at the New York Post Office. In the film Lose Bolts, the director Peter Schlafer interviews assembly line workers at a General Motors plant in Ohio. A short film produced by Miss Magazine called Crystal Lee Jordan paints a portrait of the eponymous textile worker and organizer who was the inspiration for the film Norma Ray. And the documentary I Am Somebody by the pioneering filmmaker Madeline Anderson is a record of a landmark 113-day strike by black hospital workers in Charleston, South Carolina. These remarkable films offered us a window into the history of the American labor movement and also spoke to the workers' struggles currently roiling the film industry. To dig into the films and these themes, we invited Elena and filmmaker Brett Story, who reflected on her own experience making a forthcoming film about unionizing efforts at an Amazon facility in Staten Island. We're excited to share the conversation with you on today's episode. For more on the films that we screened, please check out our show page on filmcomment.com. I thought that we could start by talking about how these films found a place in the New York Public Library's collection. These were mostly made in the 70s, undelivered in the 60s. Um, They're all made for non-theatrical purposes. So what is, you know, how do they find a place there? Where else do they have to go? I'm very curious what the destiny of such films is today. Okay, so I'm going to give you the the short um, colloquial drunk history version. <laughs> so I slip in and out of voices. Public libraries at the turn of the century were like, oh my gosh, everybody loves this stuff called cinema. Like, why don't anyone come to the libraries? Like, only 50% of the population wants books. Like, eh. So it's like, well, you know, um, there's now this thing in 1923 called 16 millimeter film, and it's safe. So we no longer have to try to install, like, a nitrate booth in the public library to show a film. It's like, what? So Exactly 100 years ago, yeah. by the way. 16 so, millimeter was born. Yeah, and so that there wasn't there wasn't a market to besides like the home market to figure out how to get this this safe, more portable format into libraries. Um, you had some distributors who would just like kind of put out catalogs, but like with really vague things, and like w- like one of the films would be just like meat. It's like um. <laughs> 
okay. Or like feet. Like, is this like a health thing or so? It a fetish thing? Yeah, a fetish they all, thing. All the titles rhyme. Yeah, meat and feet is great. Um, actually, NYU was one of the earlier hubs for distribution of, of non-theatrical films. Um, so then you start getting into the, well, actually in the 20s also, someone produced a study. It's like, hold on a minute. Like, what impact might this be having on the youth? Like, are movies good or are they bad? And the study was like, no, no, we think that they're okay. And actually, we think the potential for learning with film could actually be quite, quite high. So, um, boopity boop boop, everyone's like, yeah, maybe it's a pain in the butt. Like, you got to preview the films. You got to, like, get a projectionist. Eh, it's expensive. And then World War II. And all the people went to war and all the people learned how to do their thing with film. You're on an aircraft carrier, no problem. We're going to show you this film and you're going to be able to fly a plane or clean your gun or learn why you're fighting in the first place. And then people at home were like, why are we fighting? It's like, oh, well, let's show a film. And Ford Foundation was like, oh, my God, we're going to fund films so that you can see them in non-theatrical spaces. Like, go to your church, go to your library, learn, and we'll have a panel and we'll discuss. And so that that paradigm is what started coming together in the war years. And then the war ends and all those GIs went to college on the GI Bill. And they were like being taught in the Victorian manner, which is... Hello, I'm going to lecture at you from this podium for three hours. And there were actual letters, like, to deans of schools, like, no, no, no. Like, this is crap, man. I learned how to do my thing in 20 minutes with a film. Like, You got to get movies. We, you got to get movies. Well, my question is, how did these particular movies, these movies, like these movies that were intended for other purposes, not theatrical distribution, maybe educational, we don't even well, know, right? Why, why they were they, what they were for made us. for. We so the public library as a space as like a grassroots distributor became really important, and you had major collections in Cleveland, um, at Berkeley, uh, Chicago, and at NYPL. We and in Brooklyn also amassed films that came from an emerging independent filmmaking community, and we could make those available to the public directly. So the whole purpose of putting together a film collection was to make sure that that the residents in those communities had direct, unmediated access to information and perspectives that would help them be more literate, civic-minded civilians. So a film like this, where you can see and hear, like the teenager who's talking about why she is marching and walking out of school, that will never not be significant. So the whole idea is if your film evidences someone who would otherwise be rendered mute and invisible, then yes, we are going to purchase that. And we are going to pivot and make that available in our auditorium spaces and in our screening spaces or to check out so that you can show it at your block association screening. Do you know, do you know the provenance of these prints? Like say Crystal Lee Jordan. Uh, we got that, that from Indiana. Okay, so did the NYPL go out to collect that specifically? Were, they, were you looking for a copy of it? Or how did, how, how, did that, how did a film like that come to be in the collection? By the way, that... Uh, the film Norma Ray is based on that woman, Crystal Lee Jordan. So 
well, it's a pretty special little glimpse. Yeah, I don't have like the. I mean, I could probably dig up records on you know how that got previewed and receipts? whatever. But there, there is like you know you certain New York is a really small town, right? And the New York film community is a really small community. So it's kind of like we want films about and by women, and um, I mean, if we had waited for the industry to do that, I mean, we. Ju- we'd have one, like one film to show, you know? So it was like, if you knew, you know, if you were active in empowering women to make movies, you knew that you could sell your film to the library. And we had lots of examples where a filmmaker would come to us, they would actually use Duart. Bob Mastronardi at Duart would be like, hey, we can make up to 10 prints off of your original negatives without damaging the negative. Great. We're going to make a print. It's going to look great. Sell it to the New York Public Library. They're going to give you a lot of money. You can then go make more prints, put it into the festival circuit, get it picked up for distribution, boop, boop, boop. So we actually have like beautiful, beautiful prints where everything else is like red and gross because our print was made off of those original negs. We were the first... To purchase it. And and actually, uh, we were talking about um, Julia Riker um, and Jim Klein earlier. One of my favorite stories is, is a quote that they have in maybe Film Comment, actually, where they're talking about growing up female. And they're like, oh, yeah, like the first year, like we tried to sell that, like no one would buy this film. And uh, Julia Riker says, oh, actually, no, we made one sale. The first day we took it around, New York Public Library bought it. So... Brett, you make films about labor. You're, you've been working for three years on a film about uh, the employees at Amazon trying to, at an Amazon plant, trying to unionize. I'm curious what these, what these films made you think about. Like, what is it like to make films about labor organizing today? And what felt kind of maybe unusual to you? What felt like from another era while watching these films and what felt still current? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I, I first of all just want to say how valuable it is um, that the New York Public Library is doing this preservation work because films like this are, are like, I'd never seen any of these films. I am making it, you know, I've made, lo- you know, multiple labor films. I'm making a labor film right now. I'm trying to watch as many labor films as possible. But the, the films that, you know, we, we sort of live in a time when we think all media is, has been digitized and is available, but but really what we miss out are these kinds of films, like films about uh, black women in struggle, films that are that are not about like necessarily a win. I mean, the post post office film is so amazing because it's not it's not about a strike, it's not about a labor action, it's a little bit of a slice of, of life, but it's also critical. So it exists in this like very hard to define category of cinema that's actually so necessary for those of us who are interested in thinking about you know, what is the role of, like, how are we thinking today about labor as a, a context of social struggle and the organization of the economy and and collective organizing in general? And, you know, I think most of us would sort of probably have a shared understanding of what the kind of seminal and canonical labor films are and maybe wouldn't include any of these because they just haven't felt available. So it's in, it was incredibly valuable to me to, to watch them um, and, you know, there's there's a few things going on. I mean, I, so uh, about three years ago, I started documenting from the very early days of the um, struggle on Staten Island, um, Chris Smalls and a group of Amazon workers to form a union to unionize this, the second biggest employer in America that most, um, if not all, um, you know, conventional established unions thought was ununionizable, un- right? 
And in my own mind, when I was thinking about making this film, I was like, huh, isn't it interesting that like the, the films that come to mind are all from a different era, you know, an era that's absolutely unrecognizable, the era of the GM plant, where you got a job at 20, you rose up the ranks, the work was hard, the work was dangerous, you needed a union, but you could belong to a union, and because of your participation in the union, you could hopefully raise a family, be a part of, a, of the middle class. Um, and we've seen since that period, an, you know, uh, a consistent decline in union participation and an absolute transformation in what the meaning of work is. And so I was really interested and I'm still interested in thinking about what constitutes labor cinema for the 21st century, you know, the time, the era of globalized capital, the era of the global supply chain, the era of the gig economy. Um, and so I think it's, I think that there's, you know, there's sort of multiple ways of, for me of like watching these films. I mean, one is just a kind of basic reminder of what's exciting about witnessing historic struggle. <laughs> you know, like I got chills in the last moments of I Am Somebody just to hear, well, to see them win, to see them win in solidarity, to see a community come out, to, to see people articulate that they were, they were fighting not just for themselves, not just for the 12 people that were fired, but for even for the cops, you know, <laughs> to maybe make, make a, a higher a higher wage for the dignity of all. And I think that there's just, I mean, especially in a moment, a historic moment of, of, of where we maybe feel some weakness, especially, you know, a kind of collective, I don't know, sometimes I feel some collective despair, <laughs> um, sometimes. Uh, I think that it's just very valuable to, to have these um, offerings, cinematic offerings of, of uh, historical struggle and the, the power of collective organizing. I mean, that's what we hear her articulate at the end of that film. So it's, it's both really significant to, to meditate on these films and think about the ways that the economy looks totally different and the, the, the modern workplace looks totally different and yet the grievances are the same. I mean, listening to those postal workers and those um, GM workers talk, I mean, I could close my eyes and I can hear the Amazon workers at, at the warehouse in Staten Island say the exact same thing. Surveillance, monotony, um, paranoia, fear, you know, constant fear. Like those are the ongoing, ongoing, ongoing themes. Do you think that the narrative arc, the traditional narrative arc of the labor film, like a victory, what victory means, organizing, bringing people onto your side and then kind of this victoria moment of victory. Do you think that that still resonates? Would that still be applicable to films that were made today? I mean, that's a hard question. And I should also say that I'm making this film about the Amazon labor union with a co-director named um, Steve Mang. So we've been working on this, on this project together. And I think part of what we talk about a lot and we think about a lot is like, what is, what's the narrative that's both true and of social value, right? And I think that there's, we have a disinclination to try and make a film that is merely the hero's journey. That's the, you know, like when the, when the Amazon labor union won, the way that that story was reported out by the New York Times and elsewhere was two best friends take on Amazon and win. And we were on the ground with folks and we were like, this wasn't two people, this was a group of people and they're still working. And I think that there's a kind of, appetite that unfortunately, you know, <laughs> cultural producers feed into for really simple narrative arcs that end in success and that have individual protagonists. And I think that there's a value of like reasserting the collective as a, as a protagonist of history. And for me, regardless of whether they win or they lose, but the effort 
produce something else. I mean, I think you can you can come to the end of a struggle and feel like, okay, well, we we lost that battle, but we learned something along the way. We learned something about ourselves. We learned something about the worth of this project. We felt valuable and felt like we had purpose in the world. Like, there's other ways to think about success other than did they win the contract or not. And even with the ALU, we don't know yet if they'll they'll um, earn a contract. So I I do think it's very valuable to watch. You know, and to think today about like the value of documenting social struggle, labor struggle, irregardless of whether or not <laughs> it ends in a victory. But we also have to be careful about, I mean, I think especially when pessimism and collective pessimism can turn very ugly about like, again, what are the, what are the, where, where do these narratives go once they're in the world and what's our responsibility to them? Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking about that scene in Crystal Lee Jordan where they're singing together and that is not a scene of victory or loss. Um, it doesn't have an arc. And I mean, that story is not one of like simple victory either. It's a spiritual, right? I mean, they're singing like... Right. This kind of, this act of harmonization, uh, this coming together of people and this collective trust, that in itself is so galvanizing. And you were mentioning the John Berger quote earlier about the purpose of mass demonstrations being reflecting power to ourselves. And I was really thinking like that applies beautifully uh, to that film. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's really hard. I mean, you know, as per, I was in the edit all day today and was thinking about that, you know, watching these films about how actually something can be very, very powerful and meaningful in the moment and it's actually can be quite hard to translate on screen and when you get it right, like when that, that moment where they're singing and you're watching the children singing and you're watching the men singing, it's very effective, it's very powerful, but sometimes you can film a demonstration and it's, it's sort of dead on the screen. Like, so... I think that they're, I mean, getting it right is about thinking, thinking through how important it is not just to demonstrate power to a, you know, a given, you know, a seeming antagonist out there, but, you know, and as you said, John Berger writes this beautiful essay, the art critic John Berger writes this beautiful essay called The, the Nature of Mass Demonstrations, where he says, the power of a mass demonstration isn't to do a thing, to win a thing. It's to show us that we have capacity, that we are stronger than we think we are. And I have felt that in demonstrations. And it's a deep tragedy when you feel that in a demonstration and then you have the footage and you're like, oh, it doesn't feel powerful in the footage. And you have to, I don't know, there's a sort of magic of cinema to figuring out how to translate that power that exists in a lived experience to the cinematic experience and bring that to an audience in a room. I have to say, like, the thing with the Crystal Lee Jordan, you guys, like, nailed it because, like, when I was even previewing it, it's like you don't even get the cinematic visual pleasure or gratification of, like, Norma Ray with the sign, right? It's like, what what is this film? And, like, you have to kind of figure out what the backstory is. Like, why is she angry? And what did the, the factory say they were going to do? For me, the value of it is because it is it is that moment of galvanization. She is so angry. And being able to present something that moment of pure female rage that is constructive, that is the film. And that is kind of like where, why I wanted to put it in that order, because then from that, you get I Am Somebody that jumps off of that and goes straight into action. So to have this film that can't really live in any, I don't think it can live in any kind of like commercial space like if you just dropped crystal lee jordan into like a movie yeah, the notes theater, you would get back from your uh, would be like, executive would be like where's the narrative arc and what's her what was her childhood like 
but it's like wonderful that it can it can live and thrive in these other spaces because it's a it, that is valuable to me that will resonate with me like I almost like had to push back from the viewing station because I was like oh this is like red hot like she is so angry you know and it's electric I mean it feels contagious that's a sort of like you feel that I mean again that's what I mean about something translating you're like well how does that translate from the screen you know how many f- four decades have passed yeah. and the electricity feels like a current that can go through a room even today. Yeah, and it's interesting. So that film, like we were just reading up, was produced as part of a series called Women Alive, produced by Miss Magazine, a series of stories about women's, you know, women empowerment, to put it broadly, uh, made for PBS. And I was reading up about the Madeleine Anderson film, I Am Somebody, the last film. And, you know, that film was critiqued by feminists at the time for not being a feminist film. Didn't talk enough about gender. And, and, you know, I think that's so interesting. Like, this was really just produced for a feminist production. And the films are so complementary in my mind. But this idea of squaring gender, race, labor seemed... I think so complicated at a time and actually kind of still does. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say it's also incredibly prescient. I mean, like, you know, the largest employer in in places that would have been old industrial strongholds like Pittsburgh, the largest employer is now, you know, healthcare institutions and the largest workforce is black women, you know, black women who are working as home uh, home, um, caretakers and aides and nurses, often for minimum wage. And so we really need to rethink you know, even our ideas of what constitutes the working class and the industrial working class when we when we consider, um, you know, what's what's changed from like the sort of classic coal miners, auto workers, and and their depiction in cinema to today. And I think that that, that the reason that film is so valuable is because it it's it's prescient in in putting front and center um, healthcare workers and black women as the, the forefront of like you know, the vanguard of, of working class struggle. It also depicts a collective action as opposed to an individual leader, like a leader driven action, which I think Crystal Jordan is more focused on, right? So I think it's a little bit more palatable or legible to certain audiences as like a hero's narrative. But, you know, we were talking about this earlier about how uh, the, the first film, Undelivered, and the second aren't really directly about labor action in, in the same way, and you were referring to this too, and that you programmed it this way, right? So we have this first film that's about mail carriers, or male sorters. What is... The postal workers. Postal workers. I couldn't, I couldn't believe, and I know, like, this is not going to be the case if we walked into the USPS now. It's probably all mechanized. But I the, the totally surprise me. I, well, now I'm super, super like curious. Like the the sheer number of people and the variety of people all working um, was was pretty incredible. And that's the thing that also it's like the value of creating a space where independent filmmakers can thrive, especially at that historical juncture where. Y- you walk like USPS. Let someone walk in right. with mm. with a camera. With a camera, and the I, General Motors did not. No, <laughs> but I wonder if I wonder if this was actually something that was strategically done. I see a lot of New York-based, um, like man on the street interviews, and the interviewer is almost always a woman. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that was strategic because the idea would be like, oh, you look at this like pretty young thing, like with like, sure, honey, like I'll answer your question. And so and so you kind of stop seeing like the, the camera person behind. 
Um, and she, I thought she was very good. I thought like her her questions were yeah. you know it was it was very like it's such a slippery film because it starts off as this kind of uh, funny I don't know the slow motion yeah. footage of the male flying through the air and then you have this kind of happy interviewer being like tell me give me a tour it's almost like a sesame street insert you know and then there's like a 2001 kind of sequence at the end of <laughs> right, them like right. chucking these passages like i thought that was great but then um, you also have like i just have to point out the woman who is who is reading the addresses and you can see she has become physically deformed by her posture of having mm -hmm. to lean over so it's yeah it's a it's a really dense text yeah. Um, so Madeline Anderson said that she was inspired by the trouble she had getting into the film editors union in New York to, you know, to tell the story that's told in I Am Somebody because she was a freelance editor. She couldn't find a job, but you needed a job to get into the union. And it made me think about the relationship that documentary filmmakers today have to labor organization. Uh, you know, it's funny, Clint and I are both members of United Auto Workers. <laughs> uh, Can you fix my car? <laughs> No, <laughs> but I can I can do a critique of uh, a film about cars uh, if that is a useful uh, useful task. But you know, yeah, what is I'm for, so Brett? I'm interested in knowing uh, what is the kind of level of unionization or organization among documentary workers, which are different from like Hollywood, right? Which is different from the theatrical film, uh, fiction film kind of market. Um, and I'm I'm curious if that if that relationship has changed over years and that has influenced how and how many films are being made about labor now? I mean, that's a great question. It's also hard to, to answer. And also I'll invite the audience if, if, if there's anyone who knows something that I'm, I might not. But my, you know, I, I would say that, um, I mean, I think that like a lot of creative, independent workers, um, there's not a lot of uh, organizational opportunity. I mean, I don't, I used to belong to a union at one of my teaching jobs. I don't belong to a union at, at my new teaching job. And I certainly have never even had an opportunity to belong to a, a union as a freelance documentary filmmaker. I mean, there's some documentary filmmakers that belong to the Directors Guild of America. But I think it's a real challenge for them because that's, their membership is predicated on a certain amount of commercial work that they perform a year. So I know one of the internal struggles for them has been for, you know, something like how to deal with parental leave because then you don't get enough, you don't clock enough hours to like maintain your, your membership, for example. But most documentary filmmakers I know do not belong to any kind of organized guild. And, and it's a really, I mean, this is a moment in which, I mean, there's been lots of moments <laughs> where um, people in the documentary community have like tried to form or ask questions about how we, you know, leverage collective power. That's what it comes down to. When you participate in, when you belong to a union, you have a capacity to leverage collective power rather than individual power for um, the correction of grievances or the, you know, uh, uh, um, achievement of benefits. And we're in a moment, you know, with the with the WAG and SAG-ACTRA on strike, where one thing you'll hear in certain sectors of the documentary community is that the strikes are really good for documentary because, you know, there's a there's um, 
the documentary marketplace has, over the last couple of years, bottomed out. Films aren't selling. But, oh, no, now there's a crisis of content. And maybe documentary filmmakers can take that place. The, you know, the writers are on strike. The actors are on strike. So documentary makers can co- swoop in and sell our films. Wasn't that like the reality TV argument in like the last I mean, it still uh, is, right? I mean, I think you can make, people have made that argument that reality, it's not like a zeitgeist thing that reality film is so, reality television is so popular. It's really cheap to make. You know, it's incredible. It's about exploitation. You don't need of labor. actors. <laughs> yeah, right. And and you don't even need writers. You know, but all this to say, mm. I think that there's really important and necessary conversations going on about what solidarity looks like right now. Like, does producing content for, you know, media conglomerates constitute scabbing? Um, and part of what's challenging is that it's it's really hard to answer that question as individuals. Like, we need a collective organization to answer. It shouldn't be on us to decide individually, like, I will not sell my film, I will sell my film, that constitutes scabbing, it doesn't constitute scabbing. We need an organizational form that gives us a capacity to do something altogether. I mean, that's what gives you power, right? Withholding labor has to have an impact, otherwise it's spectacle. Right. And right. otherwise it's totally illogical, right? You're just a loser if you're like, oh, I'm gonna stand in solidarity with my fiction brothers and sisters and not sell my film and then everybody else is selling your film. So, I mean, I that's what I feel like we should do. I do think it constitutes scabbing, but without an organizational apparatus, um, you're made to feel like you're just making a foolish decision. And I think that that's one of many, many reasons that the documentary and, and nonfiction community needs to, you know, have a some, some collective organization to leverage our, our collective power. Right. We'll open it up to the audience. We can take maybe a couple questions, comments, contributions. Uh, anyone have anything to share or ask? You mentioned the rise of reality to you after the that was like the two thousand seven writers' strike, right? I was uh, I listened to an episode of uh, Citations Needed a while ago that was about like the history of um, labor on film, and they had mentioned that uh, the most recent like labor film is probably sorry to bother you um and I was just thinking about like the amount of reality tv that's about labor but like mm. I admit I don't watch a ton of it like ice road truckers big what's crab, the word undercover crabs, boss big crab guys yeah and I guess <laughs> so the those those directors are not in the DGA then right because that's reality tv content do you think that it's coincidental that as far as I know that kind of like those programs don't really focus on any like union organizing. It's more like, gee whiz, this job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if you guys can, I can't really comment on that except that we know, I mean, if you just, you know, do basic sort of empirical research on like the transformation of um, studio budgets and streaming budgets and the, 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 like those shows are just so much cheaper and those the the participants are not actors so they do do not have the right to belong to something like um SAG-ACTRA you know in all of these ways the sort of organization of their own vulnerability is baked into the production and greenlighting of those shows so i do think we sh- we can be i mean i i'm always like as a as a media maker I I think it's really important to be like, you know, when someone tells you like what audiences want, we should also be thinking about the 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 sort of backstory and the infrastructure behind like something like the rise of interest and in, you know, audience interest in reality television and thinking about it in context of, you know, when was the last time there was a strike and what kind of media content was used to fill it, uh f- fill that in. Um 
And, and, you know, and there's lots and lots of good reporting on the really exploitative conditions. I mean, just like high suicide rates, long hours, really like, um, like produced stress for participants, but also therefore crew members on these shows. So it's sort of like really thinking about thinking about those shows through the lens of exploitation is really important. Not, not to make anyone feel guilty about watching them. Well, I think they're that, like, guilty again, pleasures for a reason. <laughs> you should feel guilty. Yeah, I mean, one of the valuable things about the films that we screened here tonight, I think, is that they show that human the the labor that goes into these product these finished products, mail, you know, that you receive at the door. It seems like magic, but actually, there's these people, you know, eyes falling out of their heads, working on working long hours. So, like this huge network of of uh, workers is what produces these fil- these. Uh, big crab guys or whatever we're calling it tonight. Like Eisenstein showed us in Strike how cow becomes beef and comes to the market. So sort of in that lineage. Yes. I think that there's also, I mean, I, I can't give any hard data on this, but I think that there's an interesting way of thinking about what else has transformed in in the culture and in the economy that creates even more distance between the class status of the maker and the class status of the subject or the character, right? And I think that there, are, I, I do believe that we're in a time, one of the things that's different between now and when a lot of these films were produced is that working people had more access. Ironically, we think we have all this access now with cheap digital cameras and so on, but there's lots of ways in which actually like there were more institutional mechanisms for working people, working class people to be behind the camera and to document their own communities and have a lived and, and relationship to, to what them right i mean yeah to show the films yeah i mean there was their public television i mean i think the history of public television and and that it, it, public television's role in even producing some of this work is is just really essential and i think one of the things that makes me crazy when i watch you know tv cinema anything is just the way in which when working people are depicted on screen it's very fetishized and it's very um yeah you're right it's not the working class struggle it's just the the idea of the trucker you the, know in a fetish duck form guys? the duck brothers or whatever duck, uh, duck dynasty yeah the duck dynasty the duck brothers <laughs> i i don't know but they i the certainly related think that that's is all we can yeah. say <laughs> <laughs> that's the image that popped in my, into my head as you were saying that well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us this evening uh, for these films. Thanks again to Peter. It was so nice to have you in the audience, and Lose Bolts is wonderful. Thank you for making that. And thank you, Brett, for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks and for having me. And we can't wait to show your film about the Amazon labor union. Yeah, look for it soonish. <laughs> <laughs> but not if the strikes are still going on. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 